Egypt, Greece, Rome, these ancient civilizations conjure up images of grandeur, and rightfully so. The massive monuments they each left behind are feats of human achievement as well as engineering. Who can honestly say that they haven't stood in awe of the pyramids of Giza, the Acropolis, or the Colosseum? But while these cultures have left an indelible mark on Western society, they were by no means the first of their kind. In fact, long before Julius Caesar ruled one of the world's largest empires, before the Greek politician Pericles became the first to propose democracy, even before any pharaoh ruled the rich lands around the Nile, there was one civilization to rival them all. Known as Mesopotamia, from the Greek mesos, middle, and potamos, rivers, it was located in a fertile valley between two rivers in what's now Iraq, and spawned the world's first cities and complex societies. How did civilization begin in Mesopotamia? What empires made up its vast swath of land? And what contributions did they make that are still in use today? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The deserts of southern Iraq are harsh, unforgiving landscapes. In these barren, windswept oceans of sand, it would seem highly unlikely that anyone or anything could survive such conditions. With an arid climate and little annual rainfall, this scarcely seems like it would be the place where humanity's first civilizations would arise. But look a bit more closely, perhaps on a map or through Google Earth's satellite view, and you'll see that two long rivers, whose headwaters can be traced to the Taurus Mountains in Turkey, and run nearly 2,000 miles, 3,219 kilometers each, before emptying into the Persian Gulf, cut through the region like iridescent blue serpents. Known as the Tigris and the Euphrates, these waterways would prove pivotal in laying down the foundations for the world's earliest societies, making the region surrounding them the mother of civilization itself. But human presence was nothing new in Mesopotamia. In fact, its first inhabitants had begun settling in the northern part of the area during the Ice Age, roughly around 14,000 BC. These early people lived in small settlements comprised of circular houses, and, like the rest of humanity at the time, were hunter-gatherers, chasing big game for food and clothing and eating berries, nuts, and wild fruit. Some 5,000 years would elapse before these tiny settlements would evolve into the first agrarian communities of the Ubayid culture, so named for the region of Iraq, where traces of of their presence have been found, following the domestication of cattle, horses, and other animals, as well as the development of agriculture with the cultivation of plants such as pine nuts, dates, and figs. These settlements first popped up along the shores of the Tigris and Euphrates, which makes sense given that the plain surrounding the two rivers was quite fertile given its proximity to the water. But the problem with this was that, when rainfall was plentiful, the surrounding banks were prone to severe flooding, which would virtually submerge whole fields, destroying potential produce. Luckily, these early inhabitants were fast learners and quite adaptable. They realized that, by digging ditches and channels, they could bring water from the rivers to their fields, which they relocated further inland from the rivers. For millennia, the people of Mesopotamia maintained these practices. Their farming communities continued to grow and spread to the southern part of the region as well. By 3200 BC, the agrarian societies in the south had grown so much that they evolved into the world's first cities, and in turn, humanity's first civilization, Sumer. The earliest of these cities was Uruk, a sprawling metropolis of mud brick that had amassed a great deal of wealth through trade and conquest. Home to some 50,000 citizens at its height, it featured massive temple complexes as well as public art. But what separated the Sumerians from other early cultures 
researchers was the development of something that would prove to be a game-changer, writing. Known as cuneiform, from the Latin meaning wedge-shaped, these complex characters evolved from earlier pictograms into a sophisticated written language which was used for record-keeping as well as for penning the earliest literature in human history. In fact, the oldest known extant literary work is a poem that has survived from ancient Sumer all the way down to the present day. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh, or simply Gilgamesh, and tells the story of the titular king of Uruk, who, along with his friend and companion Enkidu, embark on many adventures. Full of intrigue, action, and ultimately tragedy, it's a surprisingly deep and layered tale about mankind's quest for immortality, both physical and spiritual, and reveals to contemporary readers that our desires and aspirations haven't changed all that much. By 3000 BC, much of Mesopotamia had been consolidated under Sumerian rule. In the two centuries since the founding of Uruk, several other independent city-states had emerged, some of which were quite prosperous and all of whom were ruled by individual monarchs. These city-states were Eridu, Kish, Lagash, Nippur, and Ur. 900 years later in 2100 BC, it's believed that these cities were all united under the rule of one king, thought to be a man named Etana from Kish. Historians debate whether such a ruler ever existed, as most kings were deified upon their death and or included within Sumerian mythology as a result. In fact, it is believed that the aforementioned titular subject of the Epic of Gilgamesh was himself based upon an actual king, and was the second-to-last ruler of Sumer, which fell in 2334 BC to another Mesopotamian people, the Akkadians. Unlike their vanquished foe, the Akkadians were a Semitic people who spoke a Semitic language, Akkadian, which shares a common linguistic ancestry with Aramaic, Hebrew, and Arabic. It was under their rule that Mesopotamia saw the rise of one of its greatest and most renowned kings, Sargon the Great. Much like Etana of Kish, little is known of his origins, but it is believed that he served for a time as an officer in Kish and established the city of Akkad himself. But then, when the Sumerian city of Uruk invaded Kish, Sargon, seizing his chance, took Kish for himself and thus began a wave of conquest that swept through the entire region. Within a number of years, every stretch of land in Mesopotamia from Sumer in the southeast all the way up to Syria in the northwest was under Akkadian sovereignty. Under his rule, trade expanded to outside Mesopotamia's borders, and a series of civic projects was undertaken, the result of which created some of the most sophisticated architecture in the ancient world. As of now, he's considered the first person in history to rule over an empire, the likes of which was also quite diverse with several ethnic groups and languages spoken within its boundaries. For nearly a century, the Akkadian Empire flourished, a cultural beacon and center of light in Mesopotamia. But when its last king, Sharkali Shari, died in 2193 BC, it ushered in a hundred-year period of chaos, uncertainty, and instability. Seizing the opportunity, several groups began vying for control over the fallen empire, as well as its vast wealth and spoils. Perhaps not surprisingly, this led to the disintegration of the Akkadian Empire itself. Among these groups were the Gutians, a nomadic tribe from the Zagros Mountains of present-day Iran. Though the Gutians tried to capture Sumer in southern Mesopotamia, they were defeated by the Sumerians themselves when Utu Hengal, leader of the city of Uruk, rose up against them and successfully crushed the attempted invasion. Upon their defeat, the king of the nearby city of Ur, Urnama, re-established Sumerian control over Sumer and wrote the first code of law in recorded history. But the Sumerians' success wasn't meant to last. Nearly a century after their defeat of the Gutians, they were toppled by yet another tribe, the Amorites. A Semitic group hailing from Mesopotamia themselves, they stormed into Ur and quickly consolidated both the Sumerians and the Akkadians under their rule when they founded their own capital city in the center of the region. The name they bestowed upon the city, Babylon, would become the capital of their newly established empire and would immortalize the Amorites in the annals of history by a more famous moniker, the Babylonians. 
Babylon is best remembered in the Bible as a city of vast wealth and extreme decadence, second only to Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of wickedness. While this part of the city's reputation leaves a lot to be desired, it was indeed a city of considerable prosperity. To this day, the ruins of Babylon are among the best preserved in all of Mesopotamia. With buildings of mud brick and a network of twisting streets, avenues, boulevards, and alleyways, it boasted, at its height, a population of some 200,000 inhabitants, making it the largest city in the world at the time. Protected by a series of large defensive walls, each of which was virtually impenetrable, and, according to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, quote, so thick that chariot races could be held atop them, unquote, the innermost gate, which led to the city's interior, was flanked by a massive entryway known as the Gate of Ishtar, after one of the Babylonians' chief goddesses. Fashioned largely out of lapis lazuli, a highly sought-after, semi-precious blue stone, and inscribed with figures of bulls, lions, and other exotic fauna, it stood some fifty feet, fifteen meters in height, with foundations that were an additional forty-five feet, thirteen point seven five meters underground. Commissioned under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, who ruled from 605 to 562 BC, its reconstructed appearance can be seen in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, Germany. The rulers of Babylon were descended from a long line of kings who were seen and revered as gods. Perhaps the most famous of these rulers was Hammurabi, who ruled from 1792 to 1750 BC. Remembered in the annals of history as being a fair and just sovereign, his claim to fame was the list of laws he wrote, the like of which would inspire and form the basis of several other legal codes throughout the ancient world. What separated Hammurabi's laws from those of his Sumerian predecessor Ur-Nama, however, was that they were put into effect throughout the entire empire. This means the Babylonian governors from Syria all the way to Sumer could not create or change the laws as dictated in the code. What Hammurabi wished to create was a universal legal system that ensured each of his subjects' right to justice, no matter their station in life or where they were from. Such a practice was revolutionary for its time, and aspects of this royal edict have been passed down to Western legal and judicial systems in both Europe and the Americas. In 1595 BC, the Babylonians' luxurious capital city as well as the lands it held were conquered by the Hittites, a people based in Anatolia, present-day Turkey, and Syria. Fun fact, historians believe that the Hittites were the inspiration for the Trojans in Homer's epic The Iliad, as both the fictional Trojan as well as the actual Hittite cultures both hailed from Anatolia. Thanks to smelting, a practice that played heavily into Hittite culture, they were able to forge a powerful empire of their own with their advanced, sophisticated weaponry, which gave them the advantage over their enemies. Try as they might to keep such technology to themselves, however, they failed to do so. Soon, other city-states and nations, including Babylon, rose up against them. Though the Hittites successfully sacked Babylon, they were met with heavy resistance from the short-lived Kassite dynasty from the mountains east of Mesopotamia, which took the city and expanded trade with such disparate places as Europe and India. After just a couple generations of control over Babylon, however, the Kassites abandoned their culture and submitted themselves to Babylonian rule, becoming fully absorbed into their culture as a result. Are you familiar with the phrase, there's always a bigger fish? As you can see by the rich yet tumultuous history of Mesopotamia, there indeed always was a bigger fish, just waiting in the wings to tear down the old and make way for the new. Despite Babylon's splendor and glory, it too was fleeting, though it would return, briefly, nearly 600 years after its initial run, but we'll get to that later. No sooner had it incorporated its former Kassite overseers into its empire did another threat of invasion loom on the horizon. Around 1365 BC, a new sovereign state arose in the lands between those ruled by the Hittites in the west and the non-Babylonian Kassites in the east. 
It was called Assyria, and its first ruler, Ashur-Ubalit I, had aspirations of forging a grand and powerful empire, one that he hoped would one day control the whole of Mesopotamia. While he wouldn't live to see his dream come to fruition, the seeds of it would be planted 145 years later in 1220 BC, when King Tukulti-Ninurta I took control of Babylon. Over the ensuing two centuries, Assyria would go on to conquer several lands in southwest Asia, including present-day Israel and Syria. By 884 BC, its capital, Nimrud, would be the richest city in the world, built and funded by the spoils and labor of its vanquished foes. Much of Assyria's formative years were violent and hostile, marred by wars with several neighboring peoples and lands. It wasn't until 722 BC when a new dynasty under the authority of one Sargon II was born that would bring about a period, albeit brief, of peace and prosperity for the battle-weary empire. Modeling himself after his earlier Akkadian predecessor and namesake, Sargon II divided the now massive Assyrian Empire into a series of provinces and semi-autonomous regions. For a while, peace was kept, but when the Chaldeans, yet another Semitic people from the far southeastern reaches of Mesopotamia, attempted to invade Nimrud, Sargon II agreed to make an alliance with them. Little did he know, however, that the Chaldeans had already made an allegiance with the enemy Elamites of west and southwestern Iran, who, together, were plotting and ultimately succeeded at the sacking of Babylon. Enraged by this, Sargon II turned his fury on Syria as well as Egypt and Israel, and would likely have conquered even more land had he not been killed in battle with some Sumerians from Russia. Needless to say, Sargon II's legacy was mired in bloodshed. His grandson, Esarhaddon, fared no better when he assumed the throne in 681 BC. A paranoid man and ruler from the start, he feared that those in his court were plotting against him, and in turn had several of them executed. Though he led countless successful campaigns through Israel, Egypt, and even down into Ethiopia, he found it difficult to maintain this newly expanded empire. His son and successor, Ashurbanipal, thus faced a daunting task in his first days as king. Faced with an uprising in Egypt, he ended up losing the territory and nearly lost Babylon when a revolt broke out there as well, though he successfully quelled it. But not all of Assyria's reputation was that of decimation and war. Under Ashurbanipal, Mesopotamia's first library, likely believed to be the world's first, was built in the city of Nineveh in present-day Iraq. So where was Babylon in all this? For nearly six centuries, it was ruled by outside influences, first the Hittites, then the Assyrians. Then, in 626 BC, Babylon, which had become an Assyrian province, was seized by one Nabopolassar, a Babylonian public official of Chaldean descent, who declared himself king of the city and sought to claim Assyria for himself. Needless to say, he failed in this particular juncture, but forged a new Babylonian empire, commonly referred to as the Neo-Babylonian period, which was strengthened and expanded by his son, the aforementioned Nebuchadnezzar II. Under Nebuchadnezzar II's guidance, the empire once again flourished, as it had in centuries past, and became grander and more beautiful as a result of several civic projects he commissioned. Along with the Gate of Ishtar, several huge temple complexes, known as ziggurats, arose, dwarfing most other structures around them. They were, in essence, large step pyramids with temples on top, not unlike the pyramidal temples found in Mesoamerica. But perhaps the most impressive of these projects was none other than the famed Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Despite the reputation it has gained throughout the centuries, there's little Babylonian historical or archaeological evidence to suggest that such a massive feat of engineering and architecture ever existed. What has reached us has largely been attested to Greek and later Roman historians who describe it in vivid detail in their respective accounts. 
One describes it as an ascending series of tiered gardens fashioned out of mud brick and displaying a wide variety of both native and exotic flora. Another states that it was built in honor of Nebuchadnezzar II's wife, Queen Amitis of Media, a mountainous region of what's now northern Iran, upon feeling homesick for the verdant hills and valleys of her native land. Regardless of account, it's agreed that this structure must have been an impressive sight, so much so that it was inducted into the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world. For close to 3,500 years, civilization flourished in Mesopotamia. Indeed, it was riddled with tumult and near-constant conflict, but through it all, human ingenuity and perseverance prevailed, as society after society rose to prominence, leaving their mark on the annals of history. But it all came crashing down when, in 539 BC, the region fell to Persian rule. As the Persian Empire to the east continued to grow stronger, its king, Cyrus II, began looking to Mesopotamia as a strategically and commercially significant location. Babylon's last monarch, King Nabonidus, was so hated that, when the Persians finally did invade, the Babylonians didn't lift a finger to resist them. With that, Babylon, as well as the whole of Mesopotamia, was absorbed into the Persian Empire. By the time the Greek king and general Alexander the Great arrived in the region in 331 BC, the great cities of Mesopotamia were no more, and the unique cultures that comprised them had been assimilated into Persian society. The land would change hands a couple more times as well, with the Romans claiming it in AD 116, and finally by the Arab Muslims in AD 651, the latter of whose presence makes up the majority in Mesopotamia to this day. Writing, law, art, architecture, these, among other things, are the legacies of the fabled land between two rivers. This fertile river plain and an otherwise harsh and unforgiving desert environment proved to be the cradle of civilization itself. Even now, just traipsing through the ruins of cities like Ur and Babylon, one's humbled by the sheer size, scope, and scale of these early urban centers. The people who built these vast metropolises may be long gone, but humanity as a whole owes them a debt of gratitude, for without their forward thinking, perhaps we never would be where we are today. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed embarking on this journey with me through humanity's deep and distant past. Mesopotamia is the one early civilization that, I personally feel, simply doesn't get enough play in history classes, when in reality, they were the ones who started it all. Do you remember learning about Mesopotamia in school or college? Give me a follow on Instagram at History Loves Company. Again, that's History underscore Loves underscore Company, and let me know in the comments of my most recent post. If you like what you hear and wish to support me and my content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. It's easy. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly payment plans that fit any budget. Remember, just listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for another exciting episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.